uh, James, Sam, for uh, using uh, the gifts that God has given to you to really uh, bless him and uh, to do what you were born to do and to, to build the, the church and to shine the light of Jesus. <clears throat> I don't uh, know if you remember what you were doing six years ago, six years ago on uh, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving six years ago. Uh, it will be Thanksgiving probably about what, 2009. Uh, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but that was the night when, oh, about 20 minutes away from here, Tiger Woods, one of our uh, local Windermere residents, um, got beat up by his then wife, and it was found through a series of text messages that Tiger Woods had committed adultery with a woman. Within a few months, it came to be known that Tiger Woods had committed adultery with no less than 15 other women who came out uh, to say that he too, I too, uh, was a person who had an adulterous relationship with this person, Tiger Woods. And I remember that first time uh, hearing about that, I was in shock because this is the major, uh, probably the most powerful sports figure in the world at the time. Squeaky clean, family man image, and it crushed a lot of people, especially those who adored Tiger. And I remember a few weeks later, um, a friend of mine was in town, and we were driving. He's in ministry. And we were driving around, and um, he said something. In fact, yeah, didn't Tiger live? Didn't he live around here? I said, yeah, he, he does. And, and then we just got to talking. I said, man, that is some crazy stuff. And then uh, it was quiet for a little bit. And then he said to me, DL, he said, we are Tiger Woods. He said, given the right situation, the right circumstances, um, we would have done the same thing. And I remember that sent chills down my spine. There's a second conversation I remember very, very clearly about this idea of adultery. I remember when I was in seminary, I was meeting an accountability group with some of my friends from, from the school. And we were sharing and we were praying and we just found out that somebody that we knew had also been involved in an adulterous relationship and I'm, I was wet behind the ears, young, 25, 26-year-old seminarian. And I remember looking at these guys, and I said, I would never do something like that. And one of the guys looked at me, a guy named Bobby, and he looked at me, and he said, I wouldn't be so sure about that. It can happen to any of us. And I remember thinking to myself, really? That's crazy. And a few weeks ago, I was talking with my buddy, Kevin. He's a pastor, and uh, we were talking about another uh, acquaintance that we knew who had fallen into the same sin. And Kevin said to me, you know, Larry, I pray that God would strike me dead before I ever got into a situation like that. Today, we're going to talk about the heart of adultery. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30 is a very hard teaching that Jesus gives. But something that is so desperately needed in our culture, so desperately needed in our day and age, a timely and important message about the nature of indwelling sin and lust in our hearts. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. This is God's word. We continue the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus talks about what it is that the people of God ought to be countercultural as we live life in this world. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. 
It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is God's word. Hard teachings, hard thoughts, hard teaching about adultery. What does it say? First thing, sex is a beautiful gift. Sex in the right context is a beautiful gift. Sex in the wrong context is adultery. Okay, hard teaching, first thought. Sex in the right context, a beautiful gift. Wrong context, it's adultery. Uh, Last weekend, I was leaving a birthday party. Actually, I was at a birthday party for one of our uh, young Prince William, uh, turned two years old. And as uh, uh, one of our one of our people were leaving, I said to them, I said, hey, so uh, what's going on the rest of today? And he said, ah, oh, just going to cut down trees in my yard. I was like, man, that's not the most exciting way to spend a Saturday. I'm thinking like an axe and he's chopping down trees. And I was like, dude, you're a lumberjack. That's like hard work, isn't it? He's like, no, it's actually pretty easy. I got a chainsaw, right? He's like, just fire it up and cut it down, and it's, it's actually a lot of fun. I thought, wow, that's beautiful. A chainsaw is a beautiful gift when you need to cut down trees. In the right context, right? Chainsaw is a great gift, but you put it in the wrong context. You put it in the hands of a man with a leather mask in Texas, and it becomes a Texas chainsaw massacre. The gift in itself is good. But the context in which it's used and how you use it makes all the difference in the world. Same is true with sex. The gift is good. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing in the right context. And the Bible makes clear the context in which this is a beautiful thing. There's one man who is committed as a husband to one woman, his wife, and they're married. In that context, it says sex is a beautiful, wonderful, glorious gift. In fact, the Bible, I know some of you are in sixth grade and you may, I never heard that word in church before. That's okay. Sex is not a dirty thing. It's not a yucky thing. It's not an icky thing in the right context. In fact, out of 66 books in the Bible, there's an entire book called the Song of Songs. What does that mean? It means there's a bunch of songs, but this is the greatest of the songs, right? The Lord of Lords means there's many people who call themselves Lord, but he is the greatest of those, the Lord of those lords. There's a bunch of kings, but he is the king of those kings. There's a bunch of songs, but this is the song above all the other songs, and it's all about sex. In the God-given, glorious, beautiful context of a committed relationship, marriage between one man, a husband, and one woman, his wife. In any other context, the Bible says sex is taken out of context and can be a dangerous thing. It says one husband, one wife. He doesn't say one man and one man. He doesn't say one woman and one woman. He doesn't say one man who's married with one woman he's not married to. He doesn't say one married woman with a man he's not, she's not married to. He doesn't say one unmarried man with one unmarried woman. He says a married man and a married woman together, people married to one another. This is the great and glorious context in which sex is elevated as the beautiful gift that it is. And so God creates this gift and he wraps it up and he puts boundaries around it because we put boundaries around the things that we value, don't we? We put boundaries and protection around things like our cell phone. We put protection around our car, 
around our home. It's called fences or it's called insurance. It's called whatever you call it. But we protect the things that are valuable. And so God protects and puts boundaries around this glorious gift called sex. And he says within the context, it is amazing and it is beautiful and it is wonderful. And he wraps it up and he says, handle with care. But a lot of us, like the child waiting to open up that Christmas gift before it's time, are tempted because when we know what's in there and we know how beautiful it is and we know how excellent it is, the temptation is to want to open it before we're supposed to. And many have done that. Other people find it to be difficult to stay away from that temptation and to seek to take it out of its context simply because it's forbidden because that person is married or because we're not married or because it's, it's uh, forbidden. Sometimes forbidden fruit does taste better, doesn't it? And we know that. And there wouldn't be, unless sin was beautiful and desirable to us, at least in the moment, we would not turn away from someone as beautiful as Jesus in order to pursue something as short-lived as sin, unless there was a real lure and temptation to it. And so, in the same way that if something says wet paint, don't touch, we want to touch it, in the same way, because God says this is only to be opened in its proper context, a lot of times we're tempted to do that. But God says there's one context and one context alone. And anything outside of a covenantal marriage between a man and a woman, husband and wife, sex outside of that context is adultery. And if you look at our culture, right, you look at our culture, I think it was a, a, a theologian named Kevin DeYoung, a pastor named Kevin DeYoung. He says, not only have we broken the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, but we have smashed it to pieces. We live in a culture in which a website like Ashley Madison was created with the express purpose. Their tagline is, life is short, have an affair. That is preposterous to think about. But not only is it to, to think about the immorality that would cause a person to create a website that says have an affair, but the fact that thousands of people sign up for that website in order to have an affair. That's a culture we live in. I was uh, doing some work at a cafe last Saturday. Last Saturday, a uh, couple hours, I was uh, sitting out <laughs> at the Mech Cafe. It was a McDonald's. And I was sitting out at McDonald's. I wanted to sound more culture than I am, but I was at McDonald's. Free Wi-Fi, it's nice there, $1 iced tea. So I was sitting there doing some work, and this man uh, comes up to me, 66-year-old Saudi Arabian man with his iPad, and he slides in next to me, and he says, can you help me? I said, I, I will do my best, is what I said, but I'm thinking, man, I got, uh, I got church, I got to go home in a little bit, so hopefully we can do this snappy. And so he's like, I need your help to take pictures off of my iPad and to email it to my daughter who's in Houston. And I need to do this today. I said, okay, let's, uh, let's see. I usually know how to, to, to do things like that uh, if it's simple. But he's got pictures on three different apps. There's 182 pictures from one app. There's 20 on another and 18 in another. There's like 220 pictures. I'm like, uh, you need all these sent like today? And he's like, yeah, but I don't know how to do it. I'm 66 and my kids, they, they're not here to help me. And so I'm like, bro, man, it's going to take like all night. I know it's 24 hours, but I got to go. And so he, he, I'm trying to get it to, to have, I've never used these apps before, and it's kind of like difficult, but I'm, I'm, I'm figuring out. So let's create an album. Let's share it. Give her an email address to her, and then we could, we could do that. And so as we're working on it, he's like, can I, can I just tell you what's going on? Can I tell you? 
I said, okay. He says, my daughter is married and her husband has been cheating on her with all these women whose pictures we see here. And I have the pictures on my wife's iPad and I need to send it to her in order that she could have a conversation with him. I was like, oh my goodness. I feel so bad for you. And I can't even begin to imagine his daughter's face when she clicks on these pictures and sees pictures of her husband who denied everything he said and has this picture with arms around all these different women sitting in fancy sports cars with them and email conversations with all of these people. And we as a culture have taken the seventh commandment and we have smashed it to pieces because she is far from being the only one Far from being the only one. I could tell you conversation after conversation, even in the, past, in, in the past year, people that I've had who've dealt with the devastating effects of adultery in their lives. In the 1950s, I think it was Haddon Robinson who, who talks about this. He said, the 1950s, Hugh Hefner came out with a magazine called Playboy. And the motto, and the, the, basically what he's trying to communicate to mainstream culture is that sex is just good, clean fun. You should have it with whomever you want, whenever you want, anywhere you want to have it. And so that took root in our cultural milieu, and it began to inform the hearts and the minds of people to say, yeah, let's just do it. It's just an appetite. You get hungry, you eat. You get thirsty, you drink. You want to have sex, you do it with whomever you want. And that's the message that's played out in our culture. Wherever you want, whoever you want, as long as they're two consenting people, then that's fine. And so that's what's happened. And anyone who fights against that teaching is called a prude or a Puritan. Episode four of Seinfeld, season, not Seinfeld, uh, Friends, season one. It was the one with George Stephanopoulos. I don't know if you've ever seen this one. But three guys, they go out to watch a hockey game. And they're trying to comfort one of their buddies. And they find out later that he says, this night was the first night many years ago that I slept with my wife. And then he goes on to say, it's actually the first night that I slept with anybody in my whole life. And so he goes away and these two friends are talking and they say, can you believe that he's only slept with one woman in his whole life? They're they're incredulous about it. They're incredulous that someone actually sticks to the biblical teaching. And so the one guy says, the other guy says to him, you know, I actually, I think it's kind of sweet. It's romantic. And the other guy goes, really? And the guy responds, he's like, actually, no, that guy's a freak. And that's what our world will tell us. Because our world has taken the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, and we've smashed it to pieces. And the tragedy is that in the name of religion, some people have even baptized adultery in the language of biblical truth and said things like, well, hey, two people, as long as they're consenting. That's why some within the Christian circle can even say one man, as long as he loves another man, it's okay. And they cloak it in biblical language. Jesus came to teach the law is love. Therefore, let people love. It's unloving to deny them the right to love the people they want to love. Two women, they love each other. Let them get married and let them do their thing. In the right context, man and woman, husband and wife married, it's a beautiful thing. But in the wrong context, it's adultery and it pushes against the law of God. So the Pharisees are thinking, wow, you know what? At least 
Boy, I would never, I would never shack up with a Mediterranean maiden at some motel. And so I'm fine. But Jesus cuts to the heart. And the second thing that we see, second thing that we see here is that adultery is a heart issue and it has devastating consequences. Adultery is a heart issue. It's not about what you do, your physical body. It's a heart issue. Uh, You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Why? Seventh commandment, very clear. Why not commit adultery? Because God is passionate about marriage as the picture, the clearest picture in any human relationship of the relationship between God and his church, between Jesus and the bride that he loves. Marriage. And when that image is distorted and destroyed by people, it distorts our understanding of who God is and of his love for his people. Do not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. This commandment, not only to break this commandment, not only breaks the seventh commandment, but it breaks a whole host of others to not covet, to not steal, to not take what is not yours. And so there's provision and protection around it. Leviticus 20.10 says, anyone who commits adultery is subject to murder, the death penalty. Why? Because that's how serious God is about honoring the sanctity of marriage. And so you see the Pharisees. They're very clear. You see the Pharisees in John 8 in in, in different passages where they find a woman caught in adultery and they say, Jesus, the penalty, the punishment, the consequences are that she must be stoned to death. So what do you say? What do you say? They understood that she was caught in the act of adultery. And so she must be stoned. The Pharisees, as they understand the do not commit adultery command, are thinking it's about a simple act. And as long as I don't do that, as long as I'm not caught doing anything shady with another person, then I'm going to be all right. And maybe we think as we go through the list of the commandments, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness. Don't co- At least we can skip over murder. At least we can skip over the adultery one. But Jesus cuts through the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and of our hearts as well. And he says, listen, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. And you might think you're all right with that, but check this one out. He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That means whether or not you are a physical adulterer or not, there are many of us in here who have committed adultery of our hearts. And we are guilty as charged. Because Jesus is saying adultery is not about the act. You can get away with that and you'll be all right with not doing the act, but it's about the heart. And if it's about the heart, then all of us stand judged under a standard that is more righteous than the righteousness of the Pharisees. That's what Jesus said, right? We all stand under, sit under that same law, that same judgment. You've committed adultery in your heart. So, you know, I talk to people who come to me and they say, hey, you know what, uh, uh, I, I kind of messed up with my girlfriend. I kind of messed up with my boyfriend. Thank God we didn't go all the way. And that's what, that's what we say a lot, right? By the grace of God, I didn't go all the way, which is really the grace of God. It is the grace of God. But the heart that has put us in that situation in the first place betrays the heart that longs for adultery anyway. We shouldn't be content with not having done the act. We, 
Because you remember last week, it wasn't, it, it, the, the prohibitions are not just don't do this. It's we got to fight to be the opposite. Not just don't murder, but you got to fight for right relationships with the people that you wanted to kill. It's not just don't commit adultery, but you got to fight for purity on the back end. That's what he's saying. The heart of it is not just I didn't commit an act. The heart of it is that I live, I'm living in purity. This is my desire to honor you, Lord, with all my heart. One thing, right, one thing I want, uh, one thing I want is to be holy, set apart for you. That's the one thing that we ought to want. Not just I didn't do the act, but it's I want to be holy. Jesus changes the metric and completely flips it on its right side up to say this is what it's all about. This is what it's all about. Because the majority of us have sensibility enough to know that I'm not going to be caught dead with a person of the opposite gender before I'm married or if I'm not married to them. But within the heart, the beast still creeps. And Jesus saying, listen, if you've committed a lust, if you've looked at, at them with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. How should we relate? 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2 says, treat older men, okay, sisters, women, treat older men as fathers and younger men as brothers. Okay, men, check this out. Here's your standard of how you relate to one another. Treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters. And then he adds 1 Timothy 5, 2 with absolute purity. There's your standard of how you date one another, how you look at one another. If you wouldn't do it with your mom, don't do it with your older girl in church. If you wouldn't do it with your sister, then don't do it to that younger girl in church. If you wouldn't do it with your dad, that's what he's saying right? The next time you look with lust at your boyfriend, girlfriend, see your mom or dad. (laughs) That's crazy. That will douse some cold water on your sex drive, won't it? But that's what he's saying. Absolute purity. That's the standard. Not just, I didn't cross the line. Absolute purity. What does he say? If you look lustfully, Here's what he's saying. He's, he's, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying when you look at someone and you say, wow, that's a beautiful woman, a beautiful, handsome man. That's not what's lustful and what he's condemning here. It's not the look. It's the lustful look. Basically, he's saying the look that lusts. The purpose of your looking is in order that you might lust after them, that you might want what you cannot have, that you might covet what you cannot have. It's the, it's the mentality that says, if I could, I would. If I could, I would. If no one were ever to find out, then I would. That's the heart that he's talking about. A, it's not a casual look, but it is a lingering glance, a gaze upon somebody with intent. And the intent is at the heart of what Jesus is talking about. You look at them and you think about, wow, what would it be like? And that's the look of lust that has caused you to do adultery in your heart already. Again, the, the, I would hope that the great majority of us, that all of us would have enough sense to say, I'm not going to do anything physically. But here in the cinema, in the theater of our mind is where so often we have committed adultery. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, hey, you know what? Why, why is it that we watch certain TV shows and read certain books, romance novels, Korean dramas, Desperate Housewives, Bachelor, Bachelorette? Why? 
He says, is it not because we know that we wouldn't go on a show like that, but we have no problems living by proxy through them. And we think, if I was that bachelorette, if I was that bachelor surrounded by all these beautiful people, and we say things like, I just want to see who wins. I just want to see what kind of rose they get. But it betrays a heart of lust within our hearts. We've committed adultery in our heart. Like Jesus doesn't say, hey, 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 there's the line. I right? don't cross it. He says absolute purity. Because adultery is a heart issue. It's a heart issue. And it has devastating consequences. And I, I mean, I, a few weeks back, I talked to a friend of mine. And his wife had an affair. And so she said, I just can't be in this relationship with you anymore. And they've got a young child. And I remember being with my friend. as he, I didn't know all this was going on until a little bit later. But he was talking with his ex-wife now on the phone. And he was talking to his daughter on the phone as well. And I'm just thinking about what's going to happen to that young girl when she finds out the things that have happened. There's always collateral damage. There's always people who are affected. It's not just a moment of lust. There's devastating consequences. When we you even begin to talk about pornography and the devastating effects it's having on our culture, it is unbelievable, unbelievable. They're saying that this generation, young generation of teenagers, so desensitized because of pornography and lust and masturbation, that they're not going to be able to have sex when they get to the, the time when they're, when they're able, when they're married, because they've lost all desire for the real thing. A guy like John Mayer, great singer, dated many of the most beautiful women physically in the world. He says, I'd rather engage in pornography because the real women don't satisfy me anymore. Crippling a generation. Families are being shattered. Marriages are being thrown on the rocks. It is crushing, crushing, crushing a generation. Adultery is a heart issue. Not just men, women. It's everybody. Average age of exposure, first exposure, 11 years old. We got to fight. And we have to understand what's at stake. We need to have conversations. The last thing that we see, the last thing that we see, that lust must be dealt with ruthlessly and urgently. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What's he saying? Basically, he's saying you play out the effects of sin in your life. The wages of sin is death, devastation, destruction, carnage all around. Some people have literally been so frustrated with their inability to overcome lust. I, I, I remember uh, one psychiatrist talking about a time when a guy walked into his office without an eye and without a hand because he took this passage literally and gouged out his eye and cut off his hand. He had some mental issues as well. 
but he did that because he could not overcome the lust in his heart. Jesus is not saying that we should maim ourselves or gouge out our eye because here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen and probably what that, uh, what that guy who sat in that psychiatrist's office came to realize that a one-eyed man is just as lustful as a two-eyed man. Right? Cyclops is no more pure than we are. And a one-handed man, a one-armed bandit is just as lustful and sinful as a person with two. And you come to realize that very quickly. What is Jesus saying? Here's what he, it's, it's cool. He doesn't say, verse 29, if your eye causes you to sin. Verse 30, if your hand causes you to sin. It says if your right eye causes you to sin, and if your right hand causes you to sin. Everyone knew that, it, and, and no offense to any who are left-handed, but right-handed people, right, your right hand was the most important part of your body. Your right hand, you write, right? you brush your teeth, you eat, you throw footballs to each other. Your right hand is important. And Jesus saying, as important as it is to you, as valuable as it is to you, if it's going to cause you to sin, then get rid of that. Here's what he's saying. I know that relationship you think I can't live without. But if that relationship, your boyfriend, girlfriend, causing you to sin, be ruthless about it. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. What he's saying, and I, <laughs> I, um, some people in here are really good matchmakers. You're really good at bringing people together. Uh, someone said to me recently, "You're not a good matchmaker. You're a good matchbreaker." What in the world does that mean? Say because sometimes when people come to you for dating advice, you break up their relationship. And I, maybe. Uh, <laughs> Someone asked me last night, what does DL mean? And I, well, in this context, I tell you it means Dr. Love because I'm trying to promote love in your life. If a relationship is going to cause sin and constantly does that, I'm not going to put my stamp on it and say, yeah, God bless you. Go and, 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 and do your thing. I'm not going to do that. If people are not ready, if a man is not ready to spiritually lead a woman... I'm not going to say, yeah, go for it. Oh, you guys are beautiful. You guys look cute. No, that's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. And if a woman is not ready to, to not be distracted and, and is not able to give out of the fullness, you see, lust always wants to take. Love always wants to give. And if we're not mature enough to be in a relationship where we can give, yeah, then I'm going to be a match breaker, whatever you call it. I'm okay with that. So that on... In the long run, it's better for you and them and your future marriage and your future spouse and whoever that person's going to be. He's saying deal with it ruthlessly. If your relationship, if it's your computer, get rid of it. Or do something, be ruthless about it, but don't just say, I'll be better next. I, I remember talking with a guy who was so frustrated with his inability to overcome internet pornography that he uh, set up a, a safe thing on his computer and then for the password, he just started banging on keys. He said, I don't want to know what it is because I don't want to bypass any sites that I, don't, I shouldn't be going to. I'm like, <laughs> okay, you're never going to be able to, okay, that's cool, man, but you got to do what you got to do. You got to do what you got to do. Get ruthless about it. Don't feed it. And our, our neighborhood has this app on our phone called, um, called Nextdoor. 
And uh, people are always putting up all this crazy stuff. And, and sometimes they would take a picture of a, of a, there's an alligator on a pond. And so someone would take a picture and say, oh, my gosh, at the Direxa Drive Pond, there's this alligator. And then people would chime in. And, you know, the people who are like pro-PETA people would be like, please don't touch it. Don't scare it. They were there long before we were. So beautiful. And then others would be like, be careful. Don't walk your dogs around it because they're, you know, like Korean people. They'll eat your dogs. <laughs> they don't say things like that. And there's other people who are just, they say a bunch of things, right? And there's uh, always someone, always someone who says, whatever you do, don't feed the alligator. Because our relationship and our ability to relate to alligators, as if we relate to them, but our ability to relate to alligators is predicated upon their fear of us. So if they're afraid of us, they're not going to come to us. They're going to keep their distance. But if we feed them, become friendly with them, they think they're our friend, that's when they get close enough to attack us. Don't feed the beast. A lot of times we think, if I just, I just feed it a little bit, just a little bit of kissing, hot and heavy, just a little bit, and we'll stop. Then don't feed the beast. A little bit of just looking at uh, maybe uh, just a few of these pictures. Don't feed the beast because what you think you can handle will end up being destructive. Don't feed the beast. Don't feed the lust. Don't feed the desire. Get out of there. Get out of there and kill sin before sin kills you. So many people, so many people have been handicapped and and had their vision for what they want to do for God hijacked and they're hanging out on the side of the road because they've gotten off the highway of holiness and allowed their hearts to be led astray by the siren call of lust in their hearts. And there's carnage of people who looked up to them. There's carnage of family members, carnage of a broken marriage all around them. Jesus says, be ruthless. And hear hear what he's saying. And don't ignore the voice of love that calls. Do it for the sake of your now. Do it for the sake of your future. Do it for the sake of your future spouse. Do it for, I, I pray right now for our kids, and I pray for, uh, for Manny's future husband, for Elijah's future wife, and Elisa's future husband. And one of the things I pray for them is, Lord, help them to be pure. Help them not to hijack their purity on the altar of instant gratification. I, I, I've got to pray for them now before it's too late, before they get to an age of exposure where they've hardened their hearts and they've seared their conscience and they've just... Harden their soul to the things of God. And when they look at a woman, they cannot look at them without objectifying them. Get rid of sin before it gets rid of you. Countless reasons. But to me, I think the greatest motivation that Jesus gives for why we ought to fight for holiness and purity in our lives is in the Beatitudes that we read. said, blessed 
Matthew 5, 8, are the pure in heart, for they will see God. What Jesus is trying to do is he's loosening that grip that lust and that men and that women have on our hearts. He's trying to break that free by saying, don't you think, uh, one preacher says, don't you think that a glimpse of God is greater than a glimpse of that girl or that boy? To have a glimpse of God, to see him, is that not worth it for you to see him in a way that you've never seen him before? I want to see God. When I, imagine what that would look like if we came into our worship service and we made a commitment to saying, I want to live free of these lusts in my heart. And we came into this place. What would your worship experience look like? What would it look like when you saw your brother, you saw your sister, and there was no thought of anything impure, but you saw them with holy longing. And then when you came into this place to worship, that your soul set free from all of the distractions and that you saw God. Would that not be the greatest worship that you've ever encountered in this life? To see God in that clarity. To see God in that beauty. To see God in all of his wondrous worth. And then to respond to the glory of God in that way. Would that not be worth it? You see... Jesus, when he's speaking to the Pharisees, the Pharisees said, you know what? As long as I don't cross that line, I'm all right. But Jesus saying, you think your standards are rigid, but my standards are infinitely higher. In fact, the Pharisees would bring to Jesus a woman at the end of John 7, start of John 8, and they would say, look, Jesus, we found a woman caught in adultery. Right? Does she not deserve death? Does she? If you've committed adultery, if you look lustfully at somebody, you've already committed adultery. But she's gone far beyond that. And Jesus, whose standards are far greater than the standards of any pharisaical teacher of the law, Jesus, the one person who had right to condemn her, the one person who had right to pick up that stone, I don't condemn you. You see, in Luke 7, 36 through 50, there was another adulterous woman who came to Jesus. And when everyone else called her out and they jeered her, she sat at Jesus' feet and anointed Jesus with oil. There's something interesting that we understand about Jesus. The people who are the most Sexually deviant, sexually broken, sexually promiscuous, the ones who had failed the most, the prostitutes, the porn stars, the porn lookers, the masturbators. These are the people who felt most comfortable around Jesus. Because though his standards are higher than the highest of heights, and though their sin was deeper than the sea, his grace goes further still. And she found in that moment in a glimpse of God that having him was better than the love of any man. Do you believe that a glimpse of God is greater than a glimpse of that person? 
Do you believe that a touch from God is better than a touch from that person who's touched you so long for? Do you believe that the voice of God is sweeter to you than the voice of a thousand maidens or men? Do you believe that the whisper of love from God is greater than the whispers and the shouts of lust that the world beckons to us? She came thinking that she would find condemnation, but she found grace. She found what could not be given in this world because lust always takes, but love always gives. And God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, while we were adulterers, while we were lustful, while we were sinful, while we were still far from God, Christ died for us. He died for us. And his arms are open to even the worst of sin. No matter how bad you think you are, Jesus is bigger than your sin. And he calls out to you and he says, would you come? Come. It's possible. It's possible. With man, no. But with God, it's possible. Let's pray. As I've, um, you and I have both lived long enough and talked to enough friends and talked to enough people and heard enough stories to know that we're living in a culture that is broken sexually. And just because we are children of God and we worship here on Sundays, doesn't mean that the brokenness doesn't extend into the church as well. I know. I know it does. And God's grace is an ever-flowing, overflowing current, a river that washes into our hearts. Wash away our shame. Wash away our pain. Some of you say, you, D.L., you have no idea why I do the things that I do. You have no idea. You, if you knew my story and what happened to me. I may not know your story. But I, but I, I know. God's grace is here. His arms of love open wide. Just come as you are. It's okay. In Jesus, you will find the only man who will never, who will never look at you with eyes other than a pure, unfiltered, and unadulterated love. You will never find another in this life who will look at you already affirmed and will love you as you are. No matter what your lusts are, no matter what your sins are, no matter what your deviance is, no matter what your issues are, God is here to save and to heal. He wants to. So why don't we just put our hand on our hearts and say to the Lord God, take me as I am. I need you. I've sinned. I've struggled. I've failed in so many ways. 
How far does Jesus love go? How many times does he chase us? How many times does he forgive us? Take the number of sins that you've committed and always add at least one to that because he will never stop loving. As long as you're alive, it's not too late for you to turn to Jesus. It's the thief on the cross story. Let's turn to Jesus. Say, Lord, I need your help. And I purify me and help me. Let's make a decision in our hearts, whatever that might be. Maybe some of us need to really have a hard talk with someone. Maybe we need to have a hard conversation to be in a committed relationship of accountability, real accountability. Maybe you need to go and get a good filter on your computer, on your internet. I um, know some great, couple great places where you can go. Maybe you need to come and talk to me, your house, talk to your house church shepherd, talk to your Bible study teacher. Let's go to Jesus, receive his forgiveness, and then let's be vigilant about our sin. Let's do it urgently, immediately. Don't wait till one more time with them. One more time, just one more time. Let's do it now. Let's do it now. Let's pray together for a moment, and I'll I'll pray for us. Jesus, we need you. Lord, we need you. God Almighty, Lord, help us to live in holiness and purity. For the many people whose lives have been hurt, whose lives feel like they've been hurt, pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and touch them, and that you would heal, you would heal a generation in need of you, heal a generation in need of your presence. Lord, we need you. Lord, we need you. Father in heaven, our culture has told us that it's okay to mess around, to experiment. It's okay to have an affair as long as it's just purely physical, it's not emotional. Culture tells us these things, but Jesus, you've called your people to be countercultural, to live an ethic that is different because of Christ in us, to live an apologetic for the kingdom come, that people would look at our lives and see commercials of a better way to live of a joyful way to live, of a life-giving way to live. When the world tells us that you're ruining your fun and stifling your freedom, we say and we understand that life and joy and purpose and fun and true living comes on the other side of dying to our sins in order that we might live to you and to the purpose for which we've been made. So help us, Lord, not only for ourselves to live out this teaching by grace, but for the sake of a world in need, for the sake of friends in need, for the sake of families who need to see that there is a better way. Help us, Lord. Change us for the glory of your name. Help us to love you only as we understand how much you've loved us because you have loved us first. So we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.